This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Producing Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the City University Graduate Center, located in the heart of the Theatre Center, right on 42nd Street. The American Theatre Wing, as you know, created the Tony Awards. This is the highest honor for excellence in the theatre. And I want to say that it is for excellence. It's not for the longest run, the biggest box office smash or the best reviews. It is for having achieved a degree of excellence in the theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson and I'm president of the American Theater Wing. And we are more than the Tony Awards, much more. We are the oldest ongoing organization which is devoted to bringing theater to nursing homes and hospitals. Through our acting schools, and our legendary stage door canteens, the American Theatre Wing continues to speak theatre. We start with the earliest, earliest age that you can possibly start with, the elementary school age, through our Saturday Theatre for Children program. And their children line up to buy a ticket. They make the commitment to see theatre, a commitment that we hope will last through the years and will enable them to need theater as it should be needed and, and the importance of theater. Our seminars are an outgrowth of the school. They are on performance, they are on the playwright and the director, they are on the role of the people in the theater. They are designed to give us an insight into what it is to work in the theater. And today's seminar is devoted to the production, the people that bring it all together the producers, the press agent, the general manager, the council, the advertising people, the people that have put their hearts and their money into bringing the production to the audience. The audience is a very, very important part of the theater. And I think that if we can emphasize that element that the audience is so important to the theater that they will go to see not just the biggest hit, but theater as such. The theater will not be in the crisis that we keep talking about. It is not really in a crisis. There are a lot of people that want to go to the theater. And we at the American Theater Wing say, 
go to the theater. And right now I'm going to say go to our panel, our seminar on working the theater and the production team. Jean Dalrymple, as you know, is a author, a producer, a director, and a member of the board of directors of the American Theater Wing. And I'm going to turn this panel over to Jean right now. I'd like to say that this is going to be a discussion of the production of um, Precious Sons. And uh, we have, as Isabel said, all the people responsible for it here. And we're going to start with uh, a confrere of mine, Josh Ellis, who is a very famous press agent. And at the present time, he's representing 42nd Street, Big River, Loot, the Roundabout Theatre Company, and all their plays, and of course, Precious Sons. And next to him is Peter Newfeld, who is general manager and sort of partner for Precious Sons. Uh, he's been in partnership with the uh, R. Tyler Gatchel Jr. Company, which is a famous company of general managers and uh, very, very important in Broadway theater. He's um, been with the firm for 17 years. And uh, <clears throat> I've been talking to him over the years. And believe it or not, I think it's the first time I met him face to face <laughs> and mistook him for another Peter. <laughs> Uh, he's the currently executive producer and general manager for Cats and Song and Dance, as well as Precious Sons. And right next to me is Roger Berlind. Uh, and he, uh, he's quite extraordinary because he wrote, acted, and directed shows for the famous Triangle Club. And I thank you for all those beautiful shows. Uh, among his many Broadway credits uh, are several Tony winners. Amadeus, Nine, The Real Thing, and Joe Egg. Wonderful shows, all of them. Uh, this season he is also producing, besides uh, Precious Sons, Big Deal and Long Day's Journey into Night. And right next to me I have Marty Bell, and this is his first Broadway production, <clears throat> and I congratulate him. He's been a sports writer, a magazine writer, and a filmmaker. Uh, he's the author of two novels, three nonfiction books, and half a dozen screenplays. Next to him is Peter Ladon, who is one of the finest advertising people for the theater. And uh, he's produced, written, and directed television and radio commercials for Broadway shows for over 17 years. And. Um, and then we have a lovely lady who is a, is a lawyer, and she's the attorney for Precious Sons. She's with the theatrical law firm of Parker, Auspitz, Niesman, and Delahanty. And I welcome you all, and uh, we will start the discussion. Um, I'll ask you, Mr. Berlin, or Roger, if I may call Please. you, um, how did it all start? Well, it started for me when I saw a script that in fact Marty already had possession of that um, we, I read and uh, became enamored of and um, over a period of time by rereading and rereading and testing the script and talking to the author and having friends of mine in my respect in the theater uh, read the script and comment upon it. Uh, we came to the firm conviction that this was an important play that should be produced on Broadway, and uh, we committed to do the project. 
that's a real producer and one of the first ones we've had who really started with the script and worked from there up. Most of them start by going to London and seeing a play and bringing it over to present it. They call themselves producer, they've produced nothing, they've just presented it. <laughs> I've so, done that too. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, we all, we all do that too, but I mean, that's a real producer who starts with a script. <laughs> and, and then uh, what came next? Did you get your general manager? That's usually, or do you always have the same general manager? No, no, we don't. We use a variety of general managers, although it's frequently Peter and Tyler, who are first rate. Um, we, uh, the next step really was acquiring the rights, which Patricia Crown, our attorney, can, can address the mechanics of. Um, and after the uh, rights were acquired, we entered into the process of um, trying to put the right creative team together. Yes. And that involved selecting a director, which turned out to be a long and arduous process because we've been developing this project over for more than two years, uh, and identifying the two stars who would, um, uh, whom we needed for the show. And approximately a year and a half was spent on those three decisions. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it is very difficult. Did you have difficulty in casting? Because we heard yesterday that that seems to be the great problem in producing a Broadway show today. It, it, is, a, it is a big problem, Gene, because stars uh, have all sorts of competing media that are, uh, can pay a lot more than we can in a the theater. So it's really a, a, a labor of love for them and a commitment to, uh, to the American stage to sacrifice an awful lot of money that could be made in films or television. Uh, to commit to the length of time necessary when you sign a, an actor for the theater. It has to be at least six months from the opening in New York to have it make any economic sense. Uh, so we're appreciative when we can get people of the caliber of Ed Harris and Judith Ivey to, yes. uh, to commit for that length of time. Yes. It's a real financial sacrifice on their part. Well, we it was actually a, a, a very interesting uh, problem in casting this play because um, what George wrote was a play about a 35 or 36-year-old man and woman who had an 18-year-old son. And uh, we had a feeling from the beginning that it was going to be difficult to get actors and actresses who were 35 years old to perform with 18-year-old children. <laughs> Even though that's very much the way it was in 1949, it's not so much the way it is today. And actresses in particular uh, like to stay young within their roles as long as they can. Um, and very early on, we decided we wanted to deal with this problem and see how the show looked. And we put together two readings of the play. Uh, one with two actors who were a little older, and one with two wonderful actors who were a little younger. Um, and we looked at the play both ways. And what was fascinating and new about the play was the idea that these people were only 35 years old and their children were leaving home. Uh, and it was quite frightening to us because we were afraid we wouldn't be able to get actors that age who would be willing to play these roles. And, uh, and we made some mistakes and went off on tangents for a while and spent a lot of time talking to actors who were 50 and 60, 50 and 45, 50, 55 years old uh, because we knew it would appeal to them. 
And at some point, we woke up and we said, this is crazy. This is not the way to do this play. If we do the play this way, it's a play that everybody's seen before. It's not what's new about the play. And we just have to hold out until we find people who are the right age and are willing to take that risk. And Ed and Judy, you know, Ed is just 35 and Judy's just 34. And uh, both of them are actors who take great risks and were willing to, to play this and felt perfectly natural, natural with it. Well, they're very dedicated theater people, both of them. When did you come into this? When did you... He was the original. He read the script. I read the <laughs> script the in... But you have not worked with Roger before, have you? I read no, the script right. in uh, November of 1983, just as George had finished it. Mm -hmm. And um, immediately wanted to option it and spent a lot of time twisting George's arm to persuade him that I could do it. Um, and was introduced shortly thereafter to Roger by someone who was an associate of Roger's and a teacher of mine mm -hmm. at that point. And uh, I sat down with Roger and, um, and he just loved the play and just wanted to dive right in with me. And I was very flattered and we became partners on this project. And uh, it's been a great two and a half years. What was your teacher teaching you? Uh, how to write music for musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I can understand how he'd introduce you to Roger. <laughs> and, uh, and then you came into it, Peter, and tell me about that. Well, this is the first time I'm hearing. Uh, <laughs> and we were just talking before we began that my management contract with the show was signed in December of 83, which was only a month after you had become involved with it yourself and had found it. I thought somehow that you had been involved with it for like a year prior. <laughs> it's probably the, the quickest uh, time that a general manager has come on to a show a month after the producers found the script. I think that's terrific. Yes. I didn't know I'd been around for that percentage of the entire time. But, uh, what does a general manager do? Ha-ha. <laughs> I was hoping you'd ask that. <laughs> <laughs> now we can find out. <laughs> uh, well, a general manager, ideally, and it, it happened with the show, will come in shortly after the time that, that the producer has found the play that he wants to do and will prepare production budgets for the show, weekly operating budgets for the show, and basically be a right-hand man to the producer throughout the entire process for whatever the producer or producers feel they have to lean on him for or look to him for. Uh, advise, help in negotiating contracts with directors, designers, uh, even working with the attorneys on the author's options for the play. I mean, the actual option papers for it. And just kind of be around. All the, I mean, I've, I've, said to, I've said it to Marty, maybe not particularly actually to Roger, that you really have to think of us as, you know, your priest. I mean, <laughs> you know, there's nobody closer to the producer, I think, than the general manager. And uh, whatever problems they have, they should share with us. <laughs> sometimes at 8 o'clock in the morning, exactly. sometimes at midnight. <laughs> right. Does that continue after the show is open? Most of your work done before the show? Uh, no. I mean, uh, I would say the most intensive part of it is done, but on, I mean, like this is a, uh, a five character, five character, yes, uh, as opposed to six. <laughs> um, five character play, but within the production of the play, there are probably about 40 to 50 people involved in that five-character play on a weekly basis. So it's an organization of 40 or 50 people who are live. They are not on tape. They are not pre-recorded. <laughs> How they, quickly can you run through the cast well, of these 40 or 50 people? You've, yeah. got, uh, you've got five actors on the stage 
We have uh, several understudies. You have two stage managers. Uh, you have a crew of four or five stagehands in the show, three people in the box office, uh, uh, four people in wardrobe, and then the various other support systems outside of the physical theater. Mm -hmm. The people involved on the legal end, uh, press agentry, insurance, the people in my office, in Roger and Marty's office, and you start to add them up. Uh, and they're probably like 40 or 50. On a musical, they'd be, be more like 100. Yes. And then the various representatives of the various people. And you're involved with them on a daily and weekly basis because it is live. Not just the actors on the stage, but everybody else involved. They are involved all the time, and they have needs, concerns, problems that come up, and they have to be dealt with. And you know, when people say, how can a play cost so much? Uh -huh. um, <laughs> that's a good answer. And in the case of a musical, even more so, you know, with all those people to pay beside uh, take care of, as you do. The general manager's job is to make it cost less. I know. <laughs> I think what a general manager <laughs> as is... As <laughs> to me on occasion. I think, in the, I mean, among Peters and all general managers, other talents, I think a general manager is your no man. You hire him to say no for you. Yeah. I, think a, I think an actor has an agent to say no for him, and you have, you have to maintain a working relationship with these people. And so you want someone in between you to say no for you, and Peter's on no man. Yes, very good point. Uh, is Patricia Crown, I'm is sorry. Patricia Crown your regular attorney, or did you get her specially for this show? Well, no, as in the case of general managers, we uh, use a variety of attorneys. Oh, yeah. And in this case, Patricia has done a brilliant job. Did you select her, or did your general manager? Many cases, it's no, the general Marty, manager. I think, I think you had the relationship with the law firm, oh. is that right, yeah. Marty? Well, that was very nice. It turned Do out very well. Do you specialize in theatrical law? Does your firm? My firm does not. There are three of us at the firm who specialize in theatrical law. We represent a number of Broadway and off-Broadway producing entities. We represent some important foreign investors in the theater. And we represent theatrical groups like Playwrights Horizons and motion picture work and all four <laughs> authors. We also represent all forms of theatrical and motion picture work. Do we work. have many foreign investors in the theater? We have, um, from our perspective, an increasing number and some very significant. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, in cases like Jean has referred to, of plays being transported to this country and foreign money coming in with those plays, and sometimes in very, very significant amounts. And tell us what you do. Well, our job really starts at the beginning because the play can't go on unless the rights are acquired from the author. And that's the very initial stage. So a script is read, and it's determined that the producers would like to acquire the rights in that script. And then we begin the process, and as Peter said, sometimes with the help of the general manager, uh, of acquiring the rights, of entering into a contract with the author, which gives certain rights to the producers. And once that contract is entered into, and the producers have something to rely on, which is generally an option, for a particular period of time, they have to produce the play and have their first performance within that option period. And in order to do that, the money has to be raised to put the show on. So with the rights in hand, documents are prepared which are distributed to investors saying that we have the rights in this play and we would like you to contribute money to make it possible for us to produce it by the 15th of June, if that's the date for the expiration of the option. And at that point, there are federal and state laws to be complied with in terms of raising money, because that's a very regulated industry. 
and we prepare those papers, which are then distributed to the investors by the producers. Did you have much difficulty getting the money after you distributed them? Um, there's always difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do it with uh, readings or showcasing no. or anything of that No, we, kind? Didn't, we didn't do that at all in this case. That's more appropriate for musicals. Yes, I think so. But uh, there's not much you can really present in a serious play that is going to generate a lot of investment. You have to do it through the offering documents. <laughs> and who writes them? Oh, you do, yes. And then you have to write a selling letter to go with them. Well, we're, no, we're pretty, not, we're pretty careful not if about we that. Have <laughs> <laughs> strike, strike at all the adjectives. Right. Right. Is there a set fee or percentage for uh, acquiring the option for an, uh, on, on an author? Um, the, author's agree the author's agreement generally for Broadway plays comes within uh, a form mandated by the Dramatist Guild. And that form sets out certain, certain fees which are uh, required for different periods of time. Extensions can be entered into for additional fees. In this case, the rights were initially acquired pursuant to an earlier contract, so some changes had to be made. But yes, that's, that's pretty well set out. Mm -hmm. Where do you come in then? Well, we come in quite early, I think. Yes. Uh, an associate of mine had seen one of the very early readings, well over, I think, a year ago. Came back terribly excited about the show. And we immediately started calling Roger and Marty to see if we could because get involved. advertising. We were involved in the advertising. Right. And um, having had some very, very pleasant uh, working relationships with Roger in the past on many shows, uh, we were anxious to get involved again. Uh, on this production, and uh, I think our first step is to develop uh, an identifying logo, if you will, something that becomes the show's trademark and uh, usually finds its way into these little posters that are behind us called window cards. I wish it was bigger. Well, they are bigger uh, <laughs> when used in other media, but uh, initially the window card uh, is the first task at hand, and that becomes the, uh, the signature of the show. And uh, it's called a window card because primary purpose You've is for the ticket broker's window. by that time, by the time you come to advertising, right? Generally, yes. In this case, it was, it was so. And a, a window card is there forever. People collect them and they're in museums. And it's the one Blooming part days. of the play, yes. <clears throat> but they are kept. We have them up at the Museum of the City of New York in the theater collection, many of them. And they're very beautiful. Many of them are really works of art. And then you get the press agent yeah, I was lucky on this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Marty gave me the script a, a very long time ago. And uh, I, I play a game when I read a script for the first time. And in my mind's eye, I cast it. So I sort of read it, and my, I, I hear certain people doing it. And I think it was, it was a fine play, but there was something that, that was not quite right. And I, I think as we, will, as we will approach when we get closer to the casting of it, we'll see how that, the, the way my mind played tricks on me when I read the script. I read the script and imagined that the actors who would be playing the father and mother would be older by about 10 or 15 years. And it was a, cer it was a certain kind of play when I read it, and quite a different play about a year later when we just had a reading with Ed Harris and Judith Ivey. It, totally it altered my vision of it entirely. It, 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 it is a different play. And I think that that's something we should talk about uh, uh, when you read a script versus 
when you hear it and when you see it on stage. Um, it's a very tricky proposition to read a script. I mean, you, you, you bring certain things to it and you, and you obviously by the same thing you also leave certain things out. Um, it was also, since this play was not done elsewhere, and we should talk about the fact that this is an original play that was done for Broadway. It did not come from England, a regional yeah. theater, off-Broadway. Uh, it didn't have an out-of-town tryout. There were no simple and easy tools by which we could say, oh, right, okay, here's the script and here's the set of London reviews, so that you could take an, the easy way out, which is really mm -hmm. kind of learn from what other people did well and, and also what they did not do well, and then you bring all that to the reading of the script. This was really a virgin experience, and I don't think that we have a lot of those on Broadway anymore, no, just by no. the very nature of the fact that things just... Mm -hmm. My guess is about, would you say about 85% of the things that come to Broadway have come from someplace yes. else? Maybe it's 90%. So and this is that rare 10% where you absolutely take a script and let your imagination go wild. I mean, there, there is no precedent for what you're doing. In terms of a press agent, you're trying to tell the, the public and the press what the play is about. Um, the press has also been, become lazy in the sense that they'll say, okay, well, give us the play description and send us the old reviews. Yeah. And so it's very, very easy. If you have a show from London, you just send over your first release and you show them what so-and-so said in the London Standard or whatever, and, and their work is kind of done for them. On this one, I mean, there is a script and a press release. That's it. There is, there is no other thing. And that made it challenging, and it also I, it made it damn difficult, because this is a... People have been lulled into the easy way, yeah. and it's harder to uh, make them understand what your play is. And again, if you give them the script to read, you kind of face the same problem that you might have had personally. They may read the script and read it wrong. Yes, it very often mm. happens. And I worked uh, as a press agent, uh, you know, a Broadway press agent for many years. And we always started with the script in those days. We virtually never brought a play from Europe. Or there wasn't regional theater in those days. So it was really hard work. <laughs> But there we had seven papers in New York, and that's much easier when you're doing press than his job now with only three important well, four. papers. Four, if you say Newsday now. Oh, Newsday, my goodness, I always forget them, and they're such good friends to the theater. They, they do mm. wonderful uh, reviews and also marvelous feature stories. Yeah, they've been quite wonderful. It's a very good outlet. <laughs> what do you do? How do you, how do you overcome this, then? What have you been doing? How do you overcome it? First, um, when we describe the play in the release, it has to be described well. And that describing well was, it was the toughest paragraph I've ever had to put into a release because you just don't know exactly what to say and how much to, to give away and how much not to give away so that the play can unfold and there can be some element of, uh, not surprise, just let, let the play speak for itself. I mean, I, it's a press release. Um, the playwright worked on it, the producers worked on it, the general manager worked on it, the advertising... <laughs> I guess we, we all worked on it. I mean, I mean, we, we, and you would think that, oh, it's, it's a paragraph. What you're describing is, is either the background of the play or what it is. But that's a very, very difficult thing to come up with. Um, but you did. <laughs> we did, and it also evolved. I mean, I mean, I think the first time... 
the first release it wasn't quite right and and it 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 changed over a period of time. I mean, the, the thing that came out of the first, the reading that I went to was the fact that we had to emphasize the fact that we had parents who were in their mid-30s who were already old enough to have children who were old enough to leave home. Um, and that it was set in 1949 in Chicago, or the Midwest, or however we wanted to refer to it at the time. Um, that element of the fact that they were young parents was very important. But to go any further to describe what was going to happen to those two precious sons was difficult because you, as soon as you start to give any kind of indication of where those two kids are headed, you're giving away much of the first act and you're yes. afraid almost to give away all of the first act. And you know, if I'm, if I'm giving away the first act, just invite the audience to come for the second act. I and mean, you don't want that either. So. I guess, you can, I just, as I said, it, yeah. it evolved into a description of the time, the place, and where those characters were headed without telling people where their final de destination was. Yes, yeah, very good. Do you remember when we spoke on the phone during rehearsal, and there was one magazine, we were speaking on the phone going crazy about the magazine, and it wasn't even in the release, it said, this is a story of parents with two teenage sons who leave home. Then all it was coming to the curtain call. <laughs> You had two very good stars to publicize, especially, I think, Judith Ivey. I think she's a, really a, a big star. Mm -hmm. I saw her first in Steaming, and I immediately tried to get her for a play of mine, but she was off to Hollywood. <laughs> I, think, I would say both. I mean, it's, I really know, it's, it, I mean, it's really fair to both of them to say that they equally carry the publicity, but far more important, they both equally carry the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh wonderful. Yes. Is it, was it important for you to have stars when you began your casting? Well, I think one of the things that uh, attracted me, and I think also attracted Roger, to the script from the beginning, aside from the strong themes and the way we felt about the themes, was that there were two big, bigger-than-life bravura roles in the center of this play. Mm -hmm. And we felt from the outset that we're going to be able to attract a terrific actor and a terrific actress to do this play. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe firmly in having stars in a play on Broadway today. If you can find the stars. <laughs> As so. Roger said, the ones who will commit themselves to six months on Broadway, most of them don't like to play more than three months. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't you find that? They'd say, oh, well, I'll come for three months. And of course, you can't get your money back in three months. Luckily, uh, Ed and Judy both were developed in the theater yes. in New York, mm -hmm. so they understand the process. Mm -hmm. I think we ought to yeah. go back to what we started with, that this, this play is, is unique. Today it's considered <coughs> unique, a play that was produced on Broadway, for Broadway, without all the other steps. Mm -hmm. You, Roger, have been involved in, in the other side as well. And what's the difference in this? The difference really? is it's a much higher risk operation when uh -huh. you start from yeah. scratch and go directly to Broadway. Um, there we had discussed, we discussed very carefully alternative ways of doing this show um, and came to the conclusion that, first of all, it is a Broadway play. The scope and dimension, the size of the, of the themes required a Broadway setting. It's not a function of how many people are in the cast or how, how much set is involved. It's the issues of the play. Uh, it's a big play. And, um, it wouldn't have been right to do it off-Broadway. Um, so we made that decision. Why do you mean it wouldn't have been right? It, it, 
it um, would have been an interim step mm -hmm. that would have would only have worked had we been able to move it to Broadway, because certain certain themes are too large to be encompassed in a small house. Mm -hmm. Certain kinds of plays require a bigger setting to make their issues mm -hmm. felt by the audience. Um, it's it's kind of, it's a judgment call, and I can't really really okay. support that with any <laughs> anything like. Uh, uh, good background or good information. It's just, it's just the way I feel about this particular mm -hmm. play. Um, I think the economics of the theater today require stars in leading roles. Um, it's risky enough to do it in the first place and remains risky whether you have stars or not, particularly when you're dealing with a, a play that has uh, serious implications as well as considerable amount of humor. But it's not a comedy. It's not a musical, and um, it—it's uh, uh, just a, an awful well lot of risk involved play. in doing that. Yeah. Um, and we have plenty of uh, precedent that, and plenty of plenty of advice not to do that, because it's futile. It doesn't matter how good it is, and we've all know of instances of first-rate productions of good plays that have failed on Broadway simply for because there isn't a large enough audience for it. Um, but we made that decision. We were going to do this show on Broadway. It was a very good decision. We're we, we, considered, we considered some other routes early on. It was interesting the way it evolved. We, um, we had talked about doing the play at Saratoga under yeah. the circle rep season there. Uh, we had talked about doing it out of town. But it's funny, because we spent a year and a half to two years carefully casting the roles, in order to cast the roles, we must have done a dozen readings of the play. And these readings were done by like the Hollywood All-Star team. I think if you take the Oscar nominees for the last four years, every one of them did a reading of the play at some point. Um, but as, after we did each reading, we went back and we sat with George, um, who was wonderful to work with, and we kept doing rewrites and fixes on the play. And so the evolutionary process that maybe in another play you would have needed by going to a regional or going out of town took place over this series of readings. And we felt that by the time we, were, we signed Ed and Judy and we were ready to go ahead, that structurally the, the play was sound. Um, and that was one of the reasons we felt we could come directly to New York. And, and How is that reflected economically? Mm -hmm. um, doing it from either workshop or out of town or off-Broadway? What are the steps and what is, what is saved? It, the risk is there, but mm -hmm. still in all there has to be something saved in, in if, doing if, it directly. If we weren't sure, as sure of the material as, as we were, it would have been prudent to do it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, if you found out that it didn't work, you would have ended up losing a lot less money than bringing a play to Broadway that didn't work. Um, if we were going from that uh, initial presentation to Broadway, the total cost of getting to Broadway would probably have been more, because you'd have had to pay for the move and ended up you might call it an insurance policy to open out of town or to open in a small theater and then make the move. Um, but we didn't think we needed that insurance policy in this case because we had worked with the script for so long that we didn't think any, we didn't have to learn a lot about the play, which is usually the reason to go out of town. Um, and that's your real. author apparently worked with you so well in doing rewrites. Mm -hmm. that, as you said, these are the things that take place out of town. Isn't that unusual for an author beforehand to uh, rewrite that much? 
Oh, I don't think so. I no, think writers are constantly massaging <coughs> their material and rewriting their plays. Yes. Um, and I think the plays are always being rewritten. I think some of the great classics, if the writers were still here, if they are still here, they're constantly Well, when they see it on stage. I don't think stage. plays are ever finished. Yeah, when they yeah. see it on stage, not so much beforehand. Yeah. You were talking, asking them to do this before they saw it on stage as a production, on the run-throughs, well, on the rehearsals, on the, on the out-of-town thing. So they had great confidence in you. Well, I think in this market today where it's so expensive to put up any kind of a production that uh, much of the writing that is being done and much of the rewriting that's being done is being done in readings in people's living rooms. I think that's become what might have been workshops or off-Broadway in the past. I think most of it happens all over town now. I'm sure there are playwrights who are doing readings with major actors in their, in their living rooms. George Bernard Shaw said that plays are not written, they're wrought. And that's the reason they spell playwright, W-R-I-G-H-T. <laughs> what about your budget for advertising, Peter? Where do you get it? How does that come about? Well, very early on, we have to make certain recommendations. And there's just uh, uh, certain ways to reach the potential ticket-buying audience and uh, uh, ever-increasing costs in, in advertising. Uh, affect what we can and cannot do in those early stages. Uh, the cost of print advertising and broadcast advertising has increased dramatically. Um, and it's um, a decision that uh, producers have to make very early on when they're actually raising the money to pr produce the show. Um, they have to consider the fact that uh, producing a, a wonderful show doesn't do a whole lot of good unless they can tell people about it. So that's a consideration early on in, in actually raising and setting aside money to, uh, to advertise the show. Um, it's become more and more important, of course, to, uh, to be on uh, television. Broadcast media has become uh, important to theater by, by stepping beyond that uh, insider audience, if you will, that hardcore theater-going audience that uh, responds uh, immediately to reviews and supports a show for that initial period of time while word of mouth begins to develop and, and reaches that mass audience that uh, has caused shows to now run two and three years as opposed to isn't being a one-year smash. Isn't it difficult to do a commercial for a straight play? Extremely so. Yeah. Um, it, it's doubly difficult. Uh, Josh touched upon it in, um, in the area of uh, press. Uh, television, in fact, print media advertising is, is a visual medium. And uh, first of all, with, with uh, a straight play, you're saddled with the fact that usually even those wonderful moments on stage are, are so because of um, uh, what's going on prior mm -hmm. to that moment in the theater. The environment helps it. Extracting those moments and putting them on, uh, on television very often falls flat on its face. Secondly, with this show, um, because it was uh, an original production and, and the path that's been described was followed, uh, we were developing visual advertising tools from a script. Um, and it's, it's a difficult process and you want to, uh, uh, you're compelled to, to be just to the production and uh, uh, true to, to what's on that page. That's mm -hmm. the only tool we have to come up with uh, not only artwork but uh, television and, and, and radio pieces that uh, can sell the entire production, and one has to be most careful to uh, allow the viewing or listening or reading audience to uh, to be titillated and moved on the various levels that the play itself 
will move them when they're in the theater. And that's a very, very difficult task uh, within the confines of 30 seconds. Josh, did you um, get the stars on a lot of television and radio shows? Yeah, I think we, we're kind of pushing ahead, and I think there's an important step here that we should talk about. Mm -hmm. um, Roger and Marty did something most unique in this, in this pre-production planning, and that was they did a marketing survey. And I think that they, they should both talk about that, because from that yes. survey, we all got insights uh, that are perhaps different than, than we became. Obviously, you come to every production with, kind of, with some conceptions and preconceptions and what have you. Uh, the marketing survey itself was unique. Doing it alone was unique. And the results, I think, were unique. And I think they, they should talk about that. Yes, because that it's, it's a very business-like way of approaching it. It's, it's a totally like unique thing to Precious yes. Sons. And uh, if we're talking about how the show went from option to opening, that's a very, very important part. Mm -hmm. Good. And you and Marty want to talk about Well, that? what we felt was that um, in the past, what, play, what producers of plays seemed to do, and, and advertising agencies seemed to do, was try to advertise to the world at large instead of figuring out specifically what the target audience for this specific show is. Um, and we thought that if we did some market research, maybe we could get a better idea of who the specific audience for this show was and be able to target our advertising and uh, spend more efficiently. And so we worked with Simmons Marketing Research. Uh, actually, Peter and I had both, Peter Ledun and I had both seen them do a presentation at a seminar and were very impressed with them. And um, Simmons went out to uh, 3,000 people in the New York metropolitan area to whom they had already done a lifestyle study. All these people had already filled out a lifestyle study about their habits, and they knew that these 3,000 people were theatergoers over the last three to five years, I think. And uh, we asked them all kinds of generic questions about the theater, about how much location a theater matters, how they feel about ticket prices, and then we asked them very specific questions about this play, about what the stars meant to them, how much they knew about the stars, uh, how they responded to the theme of the play, to the story of the play, uh, to the setting of the play. And from that, we came away feeling that there were certain things that we had to do. I think the most important thing we had to do was give out information. It seemed that a, a much lower percentage of the people read reviews than we had imagined. And people felt that they did not, that from the kinds of advertising that theater had done traditionally, they did not get enough of an idea of what a play was about or enough of an impression of what a play was about. And if they knew more, they would be more likely to see it. So the way, so we sat down with Peter and Josh, and the way we tried to overcome that was one, by running ads where we did a description of the play within the ads. I don't know if you remember our first announcement ad in the Sunday Times. There was a large paragraph that explained who the characters were in the play and what, what it was about. And even in our small ads, we tried to run two or three sentences to tell you about the play. And also, uh, Peter came up with a concept that instead of doing one television commercial, that this was a very complex play that it made you laugh, it made you cry, uh, and that we had two actors that a large section of the audience knew very much about, and another part of the audience might not know as well. So what Peter suggested and what we did is three different television commercials. We did a witty television commercial, what we thought would be a witty television commercial. Uh, we did an angry television commercial, and we did kind of a star television commercial where we featured the two stars' faces and told you their credits and who they were. Um, a love commercial. <laughs> Is that the commercial? It's a love story as well as other things. And did, did this survey help you then on ticket pricing and 
uh, what would be? Well, we had, we had both felt uh, for a long period of time that one of the problems in theater generally was that costs had driven ticket prices beyond the reach of too many people and that we had lost a certain audience because of uh, what we had to charge. And we determined to revise our pricing structure in a way that would allow us to bring in people who would normally not be able to afford the theater. We had a much lower top price for five performances. Um, the market survey confirmed uh, what we thought. I don't think it, it, it's, it's too hard to imagine that when faced with uh, three different ticket prices and if you're asked which would you prefer, they would prefer the lowest ticket price. <laughs> um, but it was, it was, the questions were phrased in a pretty sophisticated way and it helped us to uh, make that decision. Um, obviously, you have to sell more seats at that lower price in order to have it make economic sense. Uh, so we couldn't know what the results would be. But that was covered in the market survey, and it was, uh, it was very what helpful. Is your, what is your ticket price now? Has it remained the same? No, we started out up? with $25 top five performances a week and $35 on weekends. Mm -hmm. um, we found that it broke our hearts, but we found that the audience didn't respond to that at all that the fact that we had lower prices was not at all, I, I guess the audience doesn't care what the prices are. And, and we felt that, you know, the irony of it is that if you look at a pie chart of how the costs of theater have changed over the last 30 years or so, the area that's gotten the biggest are advertising expenses. That's become, that's where, in fact, your ticket price is much higher now, mostly because of the costs of advertising. We tried to lower the price, but in order to do it, we had to spend a lot more money on advertising. <laughs> but you also found was very heartbreaking was the fact that every time ticket prices go up, I find that the press is very much aware of it and very, they really will, and if, I remember I think Lacage was the first show that went to 47.50, and that, that was big news. It went from, top was 45, it went to 47.50. That was, that was news. First show that had a $40 top was news. I found that when you went to, uh, that we made a concerted effort to have prices be $25 for five performances a week. And I can tell you that the only person in the press who actually did a story that said, bravo, ticket prices are Liz. going lower, was Liz Smith right. in the Daily News. Uh, it amounted to about, I think it was two sentences in the New York Times, uh, I think maybe two or three sentences in the Post. But I, um, if we asked our cast members to do interviews, they would mention it in their interviews. But aside from that, it was not kind of, bravo, somebody is making the effort. In point of fact, from the New York Times, the, effort, the, the response was, nice, we're glad you're lowering the price and after the show opens and we'll see how it does. And if people respond to that, then maybe we will do a story on it. But just lowering ticket prices, on their, on just that fact of lowering ticket prices was not enough to do a major story in the theater which I think is very depressing. Um, because, uh, I mean, it says, you know, and I think it's... The interesting thing is that I got more comment about Liz Smith's uh, uh, interest in the lower ticket prices than I ever got from anything that the Times okay. did about it. Well, so. Maybe I'm naive. I thought first that, I thought that there would be wide support of announcing it, mm -hmm. and I thought that the, the support would be enthusiastic, not just reporting, but actually 
and editorial support of Isn't This Wonderful. <laughs> that kind of editorial, Isn't It Wonderful, only came from Liz Smith. An unfortunate thing has happened in the press as it relates to this. They have made it a campaign, if you will, to talk about the high prices of theater. Uh, more and more articles appear, more and more complaints about the high prices of theater uh, occur in the press than, than, than we would want. And when anyone attempts to do something about it, they treat the lowering of prices as if we're selling damaged goods, as opposed to a response to the very problem that they talk about. So there has to be some effort made on the part of the press to recognize this effort. Well, Although we asked, we asked that question in four different ways in the market research. We were concerned that if we charged this lower price that the audience might perceive the show as lower as damaged goods. And we felt we were putting on as high a quality product with major stars and and uh, an expensive fine set and lighting and all the design elements as anybody on Broadway. And, but uh, when we asked that question, we got the audience said, no, that price has nothing to do with quality of show. Oh. Um, so we felt we should go ahead and, and charge the price and we wouldn't have that problem. Also, I think that when we were doing the advertising in connection with the ticket prices, that I think that we eliminated the problem of it being looked at as damaged goods because mm -hmm. we didn't do anything mm -hmm. like bargain prices or popular yeah. stars at popular prices. We just listed the prices as you normally would without bringing any specific attention to it as if that is the only reason to go to see the play. But we did run the prices in every single ad and every single ABC, which shows are not tend not to do these days to try to put the message across. Mm -hmm. But I think in dealing with prices, we have to be honest and face what I perceive as a problem that we all have today, which is the half price booth. I mean, there is no question that the prices on Broadway are higher because so much of your ticket sale is half price and you can't, you can't live on half of $25 but you could possibly survive on half of $35. I mean the producers at Doubles will tell you that they raised their prices because they were doing so much of their business at the half price booth and the producers of As Is will tell you and I'll tell you we raised our prices to $35 because most of our ticket, because so much of our sale, not most of it, but such a large percentage of our sale was coming from the half yes, price booth, and we needed the seventeen fifty instead of the twelve fifty. There is <laughs> that that interest and need for a lower ticket price because even though what is what you say is true that by having the half ticket price booth you're cutting out of your full ticket, there are people lining up to buy tickets at half price. Mm -hmm. They will buy tickets and they will go to the theater. They cannot afford or can or will not go to the theater that is not the blockbuster, the anniversary or the birthday thing, uh, at that price. So that somewhere or other, we, you have to accommodate a ticket price to an audience that wants to go to the theater. They, they used to be able to buy the lower price tickets. That was, a, that was always an alternative, to buy lower price tickets. The, the tickets booth has, uh, has, has literally made that unavailable because they can go get uh, top price tickets is at that half price. Only what has made it unavailable? Well, that's certainly been the biggest contributor, I think. Well, I think if we had found some way to eliminate the half-price booth, we could all lower prices across the board. It might not be half-price, but it would be significantly lower. Well, we always, always had... my contention. People disagree with that. We always had a place to go. We had Gray's Drugstore years ago to get <laughs> half-price tickets, so there were always <laughs> half-price tickets. But uh, there's something psychologically the people prefer to buy half price of forty-seven fifty than half price of lower, or even paying lower prices because the theaters charging top prices also have cheaper prices upstairs and they're the hardest ones to sell. The other way the half price booth has hurt us is that um, 
theater is, has traditionally been a business that lives on advance sale. You have an advance sale and you plan your advertising in the future of your show based on your advance sale. But what the half price booth has done is make this a day of performance purchase business. And people all wait to the last minutes. And so very few shows have advance sales and it's very hard to plan your future. Along with uh, your ticket prices and, and how you, and why you want to uh, market at a certain price, does the theater have anything to do with the choice of theater? Uh, yes. What happens to, does one theater force you to charge a different price than another theater? No, I don't, we've had no pressure in regard to, it was our selection from the start. Once you select the theater, I meant, but that, does that theater have any control over prices? Uh, technically, I believe they have consultation on, on, on pricing, but in this case, uh, the Schubert organization said you may charge whatever you wish. Mm -hmm. I, I've really, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about that. I've never, ever known of a theater owner saying to uh, a producer, no, you cannot charge what you want to charge. There may be some active discussion about it, but they will go along with what the producer wants. Yes. We're going to have to uh, take a break for a few minutes, and then there will be questions asked of this wonderful panel of the production team of Precious Sons, which is a marvelous play. This is the American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theater, and I hope that you will have your questions ready and not make statements, because I'm sure there are a lot of questions to be asked and all the nitty-gritty of what it is to bring a production to life in a Broadway theater. And the seminars are coming to you from the City University Graduate Center. And I'm Isabel Stevenson, president of the American Theater Wing. discussion on working in the theater. These seminars coming to you from the City University, the Graduate Center of New York. It's part of the American Theater Wing's all year round program. And the seminars are based on what it is to work in the theater. Today's seminar is on the production and the entire producing team of a wonderful play called Precious Sons. Uh, we have with us Jean Dalrymple, who is our standby director, author, producer, press agent, and member of the board of the American Theatre Wing. And I'm Isabel Stevenson, and as president of the American Theatre Wing, I'm going to ask a question that I think has not quite been answered, but we've been talking about all the various roles and, and, and what part people play. And we've talked about the casting and the money and the production and the general manager and the advertising. We haven't said anything about the director. Norman Reening, and when did he come in? Where did he come in to, you read the play, you had readings, you decided to cast, then when does the director come in, the choice of director? That's a very interesting question in this case because we did have two other directors who were, uh, who were on board and because we took such a long time to find the right combination for the two lead roles, we ran out of time with those directors and they were standing by for, in the last case, for a full year. Mm -hmm. And uh, we 
had to uh, go into another uh, director audition session. <laughs> and we, uh, George Firth and Marty and I, interviewed any number of directors and selected Norman, Renee, who's a young man who had never directed on Broadway before. He runs the production company downtown. Um, simply because he just impressed us with his insight about the play and uh, how he would put it on stage. And over a, about a three-hour interview, when Norman left, we looked at each other and said, that's it. We've never regretted that decision. So. He was on our panel yesterday. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh. Very good, he's, too. He's yes. remarkable. Uh, you, you used an unusual phrase, uh, uh, director auditions. Yeah. <laughs> Is that, does that take place? And actually, other than the, the usual known names that are up there, do you, yeah. when you go beyond that, do you... I had never done it before. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of things that you haven't done before in this play. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Usually you look at the material and decide who is going to be right, which director is right for this material, and you go mm -hmm. and try and get them. If you can't get them, you go to your next choice. Um, we wanted to sound out a variety of people in this case. What about and the performers? What about the actors? Do, do they have, do you have a feeling that they would work better with this director than they would with someone else, or do they have a say in this at this part? Well, that, that's an interesting question, too, because unlike the usual process, when you hire a director and then the director is, has a primary responsibility for what happens on stage, including casting the play subject to the producer's approval. In this case, during that period when we were directorless, Marty and I finally found the combination that we thought was right for this show. And we hired Ed and Judy and then did our director auditions, uh, which is sort of a reverse of the usual process. How did they, you they had tacit approval of the director. Mm -hmm. I mean, we would certainly, with them uh, already signed to do the show, we certainly would not have hired a director that neither of them was comfortable with. Oh, the and Norman, Norman had actually worked with Judy. Uh, she, Judy had in fact, Judy recommended him to us. And, uh, and he went out to California. He directed a production of his play, Blue Window, in California. Craig Lucas's play, Blue Window, in California. And while he was out there, had a meeting with Ed. And Ed said, after 15 minutes with him, he knew he was going to be wonderful. And he is a wonderful director. He's got this magic sense of, of knowing not where the play is today, but where it's going to get to, which He's I think is something that directors know that the rest of us don't acquire that, too. He's very sensitive to that. He's awfully good on this seminar. We're now going to open this to questions from the audience. Would you come up? My question is for Patricia Crown. And uh, can you just give us more details on how to acquire the rights of the play, how much money was, was involved, if that's something that you can discuss and so forth? Well, as I said, with Broadway productions, what generally happens is the rights are acquired pursuant to an existing form of contract. That contract is called the Approved Production Contract and is a contract that has recently been um, replaced an earlier contract that was established by the Dramatist Guild. And it, has, it provides for an initial option period at a price that I don't recall. $5,000. Is it $5,000? Six months. And then for, I think, a set of three six-month extensions for additional payments. And as I said before, the initial production of the play has to come within that period. And that agreement sets forth 
pretty well because its terms have to be complied with for the guild to approve the, um, the production. And generally, you want that kind of approval to go forward. Um, it sets forth basically what rights producers have. And there's not a lot of room for negotiation, I would say. Anyone could buy that contract from the drama Guild for $3. That That's a good point. You, it's on a printed you, form. It tells you specifically how to option a play and what you have to pay. Exactly. There's a form for straight play production, <coughs> and there's a form for musical productions. And they're both available in printed form, as Marty said, from the Guild. And they will set out for you the periods, the time, the rights, well, all of that important. is in there. That's Thank a good you. point. The real benefit of, those, of the, that contract is that it takes much of the negotiation out of the picture, so it makes life easier for producers. <laughs> Hi, my name is Marna Mincer, and my question is addressed to the producers. What changes were made in the production in the interim period between previews and opening night, and what motivate the, motivated these changes? I saw the play in its final form, and I thought it was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> we do, too. <laughs> That's a good question. Well, um, the preview, as, as we had said, we didn't think a lot of work had to be done on the play itself. And in fact, during the preview period, there were changes, were some rewrites. There were mostly line changes. Um, the, we had an extended preview period. Since we did not go out of town, we previewed for a, a longer period of time than, uh, than one normally would. Uh, and the object was to hone the performances. Uh, it's been my experience, and I think everybody's, that the longer you run, the better it gets. Um, so before inviting the critics in, we got a good three and a half weeks of playing in front of live audiences, and uh, that helped make the play what it was on opening night. But the rewrites were, uh, were not extensive at all. Uh, we pretty much had the same script that we started with, but it was focused. There were some cuts. I think we chopped about 15 minutes out of the play, something of that nature. Um, and it moved faster. And when you play against an audience's reaction, you find the rhythms of the play. And that takes a while to, uh, for, to teach you what to do. We and George Firth, our author, is a terrific rewriter and very responsive to uh, what has to be done. We did make what I think is, a, it, it might not be a lot of pages, but we did make what I think was a fairly significant change in the ending of the play, um, just three or four days into previews. Um, mm -hmm. There was um, a phone call between Ed Harris, Ed's character, and his son that George had actually written earlier on in response to one of the other directors who was involved. And George was never quite happy with the phone call, and uh, we left it out of the play initially. And after watching the audience respond to the play for the first four previews, we felt that um, they were being let down at the end and they weren't getting what they needed. And George said, well, we have this wonderful phone call, <laughs> which now became wonderful to him, and this will solve the problem. And we put it in, and the response at the end of the play was what we had always hoped for. That's George Firth you're talking about, the yes, author, yes. right? My question is for Mr. Ladon. How long did it take, and how much did it cost to do the marketing survey? A marketing survey is a, is, your question really should be addressed to the producers who, who guided the marketing survey and work directly with Simmons on that. Do you want to tell me? It's, it's not a proprietary oh, matter. Well, we spent $15,000 on it. It took, I think, six weeks. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, took, it took about six weeks to do it. I think it's a brilliant idea. 
<laughs> is it being done any, now? Would, if you, when you do another show, will you do it again? Or do you feel as if no? Uh, it's hard to say. I think we learned a lot from this survey, which should be applicable to other plays. If there was, some, if there was some, something strange about the next production, which, which made us feel uncomfortable, although we didn't know exactly how it was going to be perceived by the public, we might very well do, a, do another <clears throat> survey. I would do, next time I would, I think I would suggest we do uh, focus groups because all the generic questions about theater that we asked, I'm sure we'd get the same answers mm -hmm. in the next survey we did. So, what, so next time what we would be doing is specifically testing advertising concepts and marketing approaches. And I think that might work better in a focus group setting. And also uh, the League is now planning, the League of American Theaters and Producers is now planning an extensive marketing research survey, which I think will answer more questions for all of us. And, eliminate the necessity of us doing that individually. It comes from another uh -huh. source, so I think, and it's, it's an overall picture that you get right. than the individual picture of yours. You might add that the uh, League did conduct an exit survey for us, uh, which asked a variety of questions to people going into the theater, which they responded uh, to a written form, and coming out of the theater, which has proved uh, very interesting. I we do. just got the results of that last week, and uh, it might something we have to kick around and see whether we should change any policies to take that into consideration. The, the happy news is that the audience reaction was overwhelmingly favorable. It's interesting, actually, that um, the results of our Simmons survey and the results of the League survey were in opposition in a lot of ways. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> The Simmons survey indicated that there was a strong suburban audience for this show and that we would get the core audience and we should reach beyond it. And that was uh, largely why we decided to do such heavy television advertising. The League survey, which were the people who were actually coming to the theater, showed that about 40% of the people were from Manhattan, 26% were tourists, and only 8 or 9% were from Long Island and New Jersey. And indeed, we hadn't hit those people at all. And perhaps what we had done was ignore part of the core audience because we had advertised so heavily to bring in the people from the suburbs. So who knows what's right. Next question. Hello, my name is Cynthia Stillwell, and I'm a producer and presenter of theater in Georgia and South Carolina. And I saw the play this week, and I want to thank you for a very memorable and moving experience. It was fabulous for me. I want to address my question to the producers and ask you if you have future plans to tour the production and or to release it to regional theaters. Well, we have no concrete plans at the moment. I think that's a function of how, how long it runs in New York. The longer it runs in New York, the more successful it becomes on the road. Um, we would certainly hope to have a, a touring company and certainly would have stock and amateur rights available at some point. Thank you very much. I You're hope welcome. you do. Hi, <clears throat> I'm John Mudd, and my question is, uh, what was the total production cost, and will you do a breakdown? <laughs> We're going to have a breakdown because of the production <laughs> No, that's all right. The actual, uh, interestingly you say production cost, the actual production cost to get the show to its first public performance has been, a, it's about $672,000. In addition to that, 
uh, there have been bonds and deposits of about 50 to 53,000. Then in addition to that, you have your operating losses during the preview period, which uh, uh, usually eats up the entire reserve. By the time the show uh, opened, I think the cost came, <laughs> came to approximately $875,000. We did within that, though, spend, we decided to do a very aggressive marketing and advertising campaign, as the market research is, and is one in indication of. Um, we did much more television advertising before the show opened than straight plays traditionally do. And that's why, I mean, you could open a straight play for a lot less money than we opened this play. But we thought that by spending this money, uh, it would pay off and we'd get a larger audience more quickly right after the opening. And additionally, uh, in addition to that additional expense, uh, the play was rehearsed for one week longer than you might normally rehearse a straight play. Usually a straight play rehearses for four weeks before the first public performance, and we did it for five weeks. So you're carrying, and I don't, I don't know what the figure actually was, but it was some tens of thousands of dollars. You're carrying the entire staff on salary for an additional week in rehearsal. And then there was another fact. In there. Oh, yes, we rehearsed with the company on stage in the theater for an additional week longer than normal because of just the detail of, of the need of, of the tactile approach to the props and the scenic elements of the show. They needed more time on stage with the set. So that all added to the cost of it. Mm -hmm. I think of all the things that we did that were a little untraditional, uh, the best decision we made was rehearsing the fifth week. I think. Uh, I don't know how many of you saw the show early in previews, but from the first preview, you saw a finely polished show, which is not always the case, I think. Um, and the fifth week made a big difference. In that yeah. field, can I ask a question? How does this budget reflect in your ticket price? In almost every other industry, in, in book publishing, for example, you're, it's decided to, the book is going to be $20, basically at $5 would, would cover your royalty, almost the same kind of operations where you have royalties and percentages and manufacture and paper and unions and, and distribution and sales and all the things that add up to approximately $5. The rest is split between your distributor and, and your profit and it adds up into a $20 price on a book. How, what, can you do a breakdown or a very simple kind of percentage of what brings us to $35, the $25, the $35, or the $45 ticket? Well, which, one, which one, 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 <laughs> we have different opinions. Sorry. On, so. <laughs> <laughs> one way to approach a pricing policy is to uh, say, how long will it take to recover the capital investment? And what is a reasonable period of time for that to happen? In a straight play, uh, it used to be that you could, at capacity, recover your investment in about 10 weeks. Um, it's a longer period of time now. Um, you can work backwards by saying, I want this capital returned in 15 weeks to pick a number and at, at capacity. And you know what your production costs and operating costs are and your variable costs, the royalties that are owed to authors and directors and others. Um, and you can create a theoretical profit at capacity and divide that into the capital, the production budget, and that'll tell you how long you have to run to 
get that money back out of operating profits. Um, and of course, your capacity is a, is a function of your ticket price. So you have to plug that into the equation. And um, you'll end up with a price that you have to get on average. Now, we skewed the, um, the week. Of course, all theater economics are figured on a weekly basis. So that we started out with five performances at 25 and three at uh, 35. And it allowed us to recover our capital costs, theoretically, at capacity within a reasonable time frame. Um, but that's how we arrived at uh, what we needed in order to yeah. get our money back. Not at capacity, then what happens? Well, then you, you can also make assumptions about what happens at 80% of capacity and 70% of capacity and so mm -hmm. forth, uh, down to a, a weekly break-even, uh, which in our case is about 50 52 percent of capacity. Exactly. Less than that. Maybe, maybe it's under 50 percent. But what, what about our, our feeling was that um, in order to uh, attract investors to the show, that within the 26 weeks that Ed and Judy had been signed from opening night, that we had to pay the show back at about 60 to 65 percent of capacity. We don't think it could count on 100 percent. It's ridiculous, <laughs> especially with a straight play on Broadway in this market. And, and, and so our economics were based on paying it back at 65 percent in 26 weeks. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Adasa Tana, and I'm addressing my question to the producers. Uh, could you elaborate about the process of finding backers in general and specifically about how you found backers for this show? You. <laughs> there are a variety of ways of financing shows. and. Um, it's become more and more difficult to finance shows with individual investors because the numbers have gotten so high that uh, a, a three or four or five thousand dollar investment is uh, insignificant in terms of the total production costs. So more and more, theater has been funded institutionally. The theater owners, perforce, are major investors in plays, um, and. The movie companies used to be big investors in plays. They're not anymore, although that tends to be cyclical. They're, at the moment, there haven't been major players. Um, in this case, we used the general limited partnership form and did invite individuals to participate. Um, and we prepared our documents. And speaking of revolutionary concepts, uh, the traditional way of splitting profits between the general partners, who are the producers, and the investors, who are the limited partners, are, uh, is 50-50. Uh, in this case, we made it 70% in favor of the limited partners and 30% for the general partners. And the general partners took care of certain obligations to the creative and business team out of their 30 percent. So the investor got a clean 70 percent of profits, which is quite unusual and uh, might get us drummed out of the fraternity. Do you use the same supporters, do you use the same backers? Do you have a, a list of people that feel that right or wrong they'll go with you in the theater? That depends on how often you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Raising, raising the money for this show was a 
raising my portion of the money for this show was uh, probably the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. I probably spoke to 200 to 250 people over a two-year period to get maybe 18 or 19 people who were willing to share in this risk. And this was with what we thought was uh, the most attractive offer made to an investor in theater in a long time. Not as far as the quality of play, but as far as the structure. I mean, we love the play too, but every producer loves this play. Um, and the truth of the matter is, I think what we have to face is if the show doesn't make money, those people won't invest again, and it'll take me another two or three years and another 200, 250 people to find en enough people to invest. It's a very, very difficult thing to do just these days in this market. One thing I'd like to add to that, just to show you how things change, when Roger was talking about uh, you go for institutional investments today, whatever, uh, I was involved in producing a play 10 years ago, basically the same size kind of play uh, as Precious Sons is. It was capitalized for $220,000, and we had 117 separate investors <laughs> in it. <laughs> They all each bought two tickets apiece. <laughs> just about. Just about. They all came. You're a hit. <laughs> Your next question, please. Hi. My question is, does the playwright, I guess it's to Patricia, or maybe to the producers, does the playwright get a flat fee or a percentage? Well. Uh, initially, do they get a The new APC calls for an upfront payment an option payment What's ABC? and a fee. The approved production contract, oh. which the League of American Theaters and Producers negotiated with the Dramatists Guild and is now the operative contract. Uh, they get a percentage of the gross, um, which goes up on recoupment. But as the gross goes down towards break even, they reduce to what becomes a, uh, a fixed stipend. And that obtains, whether, if you're losing money, they continue to get that. It's $1,000 a week. Mm -hmm. And um, when the play grosses something in excess of 20%, I believe, of, of uh, break even. Is it 20? Or I thought it was 110, but well, it's either 110 or 120 yeah, in but any the, case. The, well, 120 is a gray area. It's 1,000 a week up to 110%, and mm -hmm. then the gray area, which is a right. uh, scheduling of, of uh, a percentage of royalty, up to 5% at um, 120 until recoupment, at which time it goes to 10%. Mm -hmm. Is that answered? Yeah. Hi, my name is Bick Goss, and I have a question for Peter Ladon. How can we compete with VCR home video and keep live theater important? Well, it's, it's a difficult task uh, to compete. By the same token, theater is theater and very different. And uh, I think all of us that work in it every day still believe very strongly that it's, it's uh, a special experience, that it should certainly be kept alive. And um, we have learned from the shows that do survive, do well, and uh, have a long life on Broadway that there are still many, many people out there that agree with us. Uh, I don't think necessarily we are competing levelly with the video cassettes, the cable systems, and television in general. This is a form of entertainment that is special unto itself, and uh, uh, God knows we all hope that there's enough 
I think of an audience good, out there that, that wants answer. to see it's it. It's an entirely different kind of. There's, there's, there, I don't think there's anything that competes with going to the theater and sharing that live experience in mm -hmm. the theater with someone alongside of you. And I, you'll always go to the theater, no matter what is available to you at yeah. home. Few people, people are compelled to stand up in their living room and say bravo. <laughs> people are still going out. I mean, I think we're competing more with the restaurants than with the VCRs. The restaurant, you know, I think the best thing for the future of the theater that's been done is being done in Massachusetts now, where the state has set aside a certain amount of money so that every single school child in Massachusetts by next year will go to the theater four or five times over the course of the year. So they're building an audience for the future of the <laughs> and Fred Zola, who's a New York producer, was actually instrumental in initiating that program. If we could initiate the same kind of program in New York, then I think we have a future. Well, it's, in, it's also in effect in England as well. In the non-public schools in England, they, the children are brought in to see the theater, and by the time they are 17 or 18 years old, they have gone to the theater all their lives and continue, but there's no magic about English theater, but there is a, a performance quality about English theater that, that the audience has adopted as well. The audience is aware of theater and goes to it, not because of the reviews, but goes to it because they've always gone to it as youngsters and continue. And I think it's very important that, that we continue to do that. And I, uh, the best note that I can think of to end our seminars on working in the theater, which are coming to you from the City University Graduate Center, and we're right in the heart of the theater district. These seminars are an outgrowth of the Wing School, and although known for our Tony Awards, the Wing has a year-round program, and it's a program devoted to the theater. We speak for the theater and live theater wherever we can possibly devote ourselves to it. We believe in the theater. We bring it to schools and to hospitals and nursing homes. We have these seminars on working in the theater. And we also have a student ticket program. And the, most of the people on our panel today, which is the production team, have been kind enough to give us tickets for our students and for our volunteers so that everybody can go to the theater that works for and with the wing. I can't tell you how grateful I am to the production crew that's here today on Precious Sons, from the producer to the press agent to the general manager to the producer again and to the advertising director and to the legal counsel for Precious Sons, a wonderful play. Thank you all for being here. <laughs>